My guest today on Dan's podcast is Joshua Franklin, who is the rabbi uh, at the Jewish Center of the Hamptons in East Hampton. Also, as it's turned out, he is a baseball star, which we'll be talking about a little bit later. Uh, I don't know whether there's a baseball card I can buy with your picture swinging. I don't know. We'll see. In, Thank in you so much for having me, Dan. And uh, you're making me turn a little red. <laughs> and I, I also know that you just came back from Poland and uh, experienced what's going on over there. And I'll get to that, too. So let me start by asking you how um, how long you have you been the rabbi and how did you come about coming out here? Sure. I'm, I'm now in my sixth year at the Jewish Center of the Hamptons. I was previously a rabbi in Wellesley, Massachusetts, and a larger synagogue. I was one of four rabbis there. And when I decided uh, that it was time for me to move on to look for my own congregation, I was looking at places all around the country. And I found the Hamptons, the Jewish Center of the Hamptons. It's an extraordinary community for so many different reasons. But uh, I also fell in love with being out here, the idea of being out here full time and being able to experience the beauty of all that the Hamptons has to offer. But really the community at the Jewish Center of the Hamptons is extraordinary. It's a mix of New Yorkers, full-time Hamptons residents, and people who season out here, Florida and New York and spend their time everywhere in between. Yes, and I think the uh, Norman Jaffe Chapel is one of the great pieces of architecture out here as well. That's and right. You may have seen photographs, of, it's not there anymore, but there was a a, a copper beech tree out front of it with a, 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 a circumference of its trunk was uh, over 15 feet. And um, it was part of the plan, but uh, unfortunately it it, uh, it fell or it didn't fall, but they had to take it down for whatever reason, I don't know. In any case, um, well, tell us about you're going out to, you said you were at the border at uh, with Ukraine and Poland. What was that like? Yeah, so back in April, when the conflict between Ukraine and, uh, and Russia was still a little bit fresh, our community wanted to be able to do something. Um, and this opportunity arose where there was a rabbinic mission that was going to Poland and the Polish-Ukraine border, where refugees were streaming over uh, at the time. Uh, Poland had already absorbed about two and a half million refugees coming over from Ukraine, many of whom, uh, many of the refugees were still in the western part of Ukraine, but really a very fair amount, two and a half million coming to Poland. And Poland wasn't equipped at all to be able to handle those kind of refugees. They didn't have the infrastructure for it. There's no refugee camps in Poland, despite the fact that there are millions of refugees who are there. And so what Poland and the Polish government did is they transformed a lot of their malls into refugee service centers, their train stations, into uh, these transport centers. The Polish people opened up their homes and a fair number of the refugees, a large percentage of the refugees, are staying in the homes of Polish people who have been willing to show them this extraordinary hospitality in a way that I don't think I've ever seen any country uh, stand up and be able to welcome refugees quite the same way that Poland has been doing over the last few months uh, since February, since the conflict in Ukraine started. So I was incredibly impressed. Uh, we went to the Polish-Ukraine border as well, the Medica border, 
as well as a number of these refugee service centers. Well, what, we, did see, what did you see at the border? What, what did it look like? No, the border was interesting. It wasn't what I expected necessarily. Uh, it was almost like a, a mall of NGOs, non-governmental organizations from around the world that were doing everything that they could in order to support the refugees streaming over the border. And at the same time, I was expecting a lot of the traffic to be pouring in, but actually the traffic was two ways. Uh, it's a reminder that every refugee crisis that we experience throughout the world is, is unique and has its own kind of refugees. And these are refugees who love their country patriotically and passionately, Ukrainians, and they wanna go back. And the reason why they're coming across is simply to get out of the, the war zone, many and most of whom have left behind uh, fathers and husbands who are still there fighting the war. So as soon as the possibility opens up that a lot of them can go back and can rebuild, a lot of them are planning on doing just that. Whereas many other refugee situations that we've seen throughout the world, the refugees are looking to leave a country that they find no longer to be a home. Whereas the Ukrainian refugees still have a proud sense that Ukraine is their homeland. And uh, the streets in Krakow, there's a lot of rallies that are going on, still going on today, because I actually have some new Instagram followers. And uh, one of the chants is Slava Ukraina, Slava Ukraina, which means glory to Ukraine. And that's a really telling about the kind of refugees that we're seeing uh, from this crisis, which is just different than every other refugee crisis that I think I've experienced in my lifetime. Um, is Polish, uh, are the languages very different or similar, fairly similar? No, they're, I don't think they're, they're both Slavic, I guess, but uh, they're, they're different languages for sure. So there really is a, there's a dire need for, among the volunteers who are helping the refugees of those who speak Ukrainian and those who speak Russian, Though Ukrainians, one thing, although most Ukrainians do in fact speak Russian and a lot of Poles speak Russian, there's been almost like a boycott of the Russian language being spoken by the Ukrainians. How long were you there? Nothing to do with them. I was there for about a week. A week? Yeah. When I think of it, and probably when you think of it, we think of refugees carrying all their loaded clothes and they've got an ox cart or something coming down. And we think of the Holocaust and, and uh, uh, did, did you, but, and I wasn't, I wasn't, I have a hunch that you didn't see that, that that was not something in your sight right, right at the border, or was it? I'm just kidding. I mean, every refugee has a cell phone, uh, but yeah, that, that's one of the things that they take because they want to communicate with their family who's still over there. So to be able to have a phone is incredibly important. But the refugees who were coming over did not have much. They had, you know, backpacks full of stuff and ba basic supplies. But how, how did they appear? Were they in buses or cars or on foot? All of the above. So there's a town right across the border, the Medica border, called Chemich. It's spelled in some bizarre way: P Z E M Y L. And Chemich was taking one to two trains a day and before uh, the war, and that's all they could really accommodate in terms of the infrastructure. They rebuilt the infrastructure so that they could take like nine or 10 trains a day filled with refugees coming across the border. Wow. 
And then a lot of them were driving across the border. And then a lot of them were walking across the border. So, you know, you had every which way uh, refugees coming over. And the city of Jemesh was, you know, literally every single day, it's handling twice the capacity that the infrastructure could handle because the population essentially doubles with these migrants. And, you know, they're trying to get them to other parts of the country. So that Shemesh is really a way station to, for them to move past. Um, did, did you see if they were excited or scared or how were they? I don't like to, you know, say generalize about how people were feeling, but, um, you know, there's a lot, a lot of baggage that they were bringing with them that's emotional baggage. A lot of them had just escaped trauma. Yeah. A lot of them still are leaving behind family over there. And a lot of them are grateful to be safe. And I would imagine that they've got all of those crazy emotions combined. And, you know, they're probably popping around from being scared and terrified to being happy and excited. And that was, uh, that was, a, and then you came home and uh, played in a baseball game, as I recall. Uh, sometime later, yes. <laughs> so that was back in April. How did that happen? You know, the, the game was the artist-writers game, which is a single game played in annually, uh, supposedly between artists and writers, and they make broad definitions of who's an artist and who's a writer. It uh, took place in the middle of August, and uh, some of the regulars were there who'd been there from years past and so forth, and uh, 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 they they all had uh, their names on the backs of their shirts. The uh, shirts were all uni little uniforms they wore. And uh, somebody came up to hit uh, in the bottom of the ninth inning with no name on his back. No one knew what who that was. Who was that? I was having lunch with Lee Pope, who has been one of the organizers of the game, maybe at the beginning of August or late July. And, and Leaf is like, hey. Do you play softball? Yeah, I, I can play softball. And he was telling me about the artist writers game, which I've actually been to in the past as a spectator. And he's like, I want you to play in the game this year. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. What an honor. I know Bill Clinton is one of the umpires for the game. So of course I'm going to. Yeah, this is right in Campton behind the swapping shop in Herrick Park. Go yeah. ahead. And so I think Leaf wanted me to play for his team, which was the, the artists. But uh, look, you know, I fancy myself as a rabbi, a little bit more of a writer than an artist. I do write quite a bit. I write for dance papers. Um, I write every now and then guest columns and other local papers as well. So I was like, you know, I'm going to play for the writers. I went and, you know, got a jersey. I didn't order one ahead of time. And uh, I'm thinking it was artist 17, writers three. Uh, it was 18 2 in the bottom of the ninth, and, and, and we were down. No one thought we were coming back. Everyone, in fact, half the crowd probably left. <laughs> they're like, you know, if you're at a baseball game and it's the bottom of the ninth and it's 18-2, it's pretty much lights out for the team that's losing. Just slowly but surely, we had zero outs. We got in one run here, a run there, and it's all the sudden it's 18-4, then it's 18-6, and there's one out. And slowly we just kept creeping back until it was 18-17, and Canaletta, the coach for the writers, looks at me. He's like, Rabbi, you're up. And I, I actually, I, I texted my wife right as, as Ken said that. And I said, better come watch because I'm about to win the game. <laughs> I, I uh, you know, I had in my head. Set the scene. No, it wasn't, it wasn't even self-confidence. It was just, 
you know, when you're in an athletic place of being in the zone of being able to visualize exactly what you want to do. Uh, and I just, you know, felt it. I picked up the bat and I felt uh, I'm going to, I'm going to take this ball for a ride. Were the bases loaded? Bases loaded. I actually fouled off two deep to left field. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, you know, I, I felt good about those hits, except they uh -huh. just weren't fair. And uh, then, you know, full count because I had three balls. I mean, it was the dream of every boy. I shouldn't say every boy, a lot of boys that you get such a count. Bottom of the ninth, you're trailing, bases loaded, full count. The next pitch pretty much decides the game. Right. And I got the pitch. I got the, exactly where I wanted it. And uh, I felt it. And the second uh, I made contact, it exploded off the bat. And I knew uh, we had won the game. And you probably thought it was a home run, which is what the announcer said. What happened I, with Paul? Yeah, it, it was a home run. And I, I know that for a couple of reasons. One, because after I hit the two foul, they were playing me at the fence. Uh, so the ball went way over the head of the left fielder. And because there were stanchions with ropes, they couldn't really tell exactly where the ball landed. Uh, but it, I'm quite confident that it landed many feet over the fence, if you'd so, ask me. But they, and just to technically end this, and then you can finish it yourself, was it wound up the umpire decided it was a ground rule double, but it still won the game. Because That's right. So nobody complained. What, what happened after you came, when you grounded third? What was it like after that? I mean, it was, uh, you know, the best kind of pandemonium that you can imagine. I mean, we were all ecstatic. Got a big hug from Carl Bernstein, which was kind of like, well, that's, that's pretty awesome. Uh, it was just uh, an amazing feeling of, I don't know, jubilation um, to really have had that kind of crazy moment. And I know like the stakes are just the, the glory of the artists or the glory of the writers. And so, and, it, and it's pride. And at the same time, it's fun. Uh, but there was just a great moment with, uh, with, the, with the writer's team. Uh, this picture that I, I saw that captured it. Everyone's got their hands in the air. I'm rounding first. I got my hands in the air as well. It was, uh, it was a special moment that I'll, that I'll never forget. And look, I've got a lot of uh, career accomplishments. I don't consider a, a grand slam at the artist writers game to be uh -huh. one of them, but it's certainly one of those moments that I'm never going to forget. And uh, just that feeling, I'm never going to forget. But I'm going to, you know, I remember every moment of that count. Every mo I remember the way that the ball felt off the bat. I remember watching the ball and seeing it soar and just continue to go and not stop. Uh, I remember everyone's hands in the air, the shouts. It was, it was an unforgettable moment for sure. For quite a, the majority of the people there, you were unknown. You didn't have your name on the back. How did that come about? Uh, I just didn't pre-order a jersey. Uh, I don't think I don't think they knew I was playing until I got there. So, so uh, Canaletta saw me and he says, "I don't know if you're going to get in. There's uh, you know a lot of people. Got to put everybody in. Right. Just go take go take some at bats." And so Ken watched me at the batting practice and I hit, took five swings. I hit two of them over the fence, lined a couple to the outfield. And he's like, I think you're going to play. And I did. And yeah, I was feeling it that day for sure. Yeah. And I ran out. Do you, do you remember me coming out to you? I do. I do. Are you? 
there were a lot of people there. They just said the rabbi hit it. The rabbi hit it. I thought, what's he got to do with this? <laughs> it was quite a day. And you were uh, voted the player of the game, as I recall. That's right. And um, are you are you planning to do any more traveling uh, upcoming as the fall make, makes its way into winter? Do you know? And you have the High Holy Days coming. Yeah, up. so our High Holy Days are coming up beginning September 25th. We've got uh, Rosh Hashanah and then Yom Kippur uh, about 10 days later. So right now, most of my time is focused on preparing for those holidays where we're expecting about a thousand people at the Jewish Center of the Hamptons for our services throughout the throughout the holiday season. They put up a big tent. You guys have a huge, beautiful tent. That, That's right. Uh, one of the first. Do you know this? Do you probably do know the story of uh, why that, how that particular house became the Jewish center of the Hamptons? If you don't know, I'll tell you. I know a legend. Uh, you know, I, I think I, I've heard so many different stories. I've read uh, in Stephen Gaines's book, Philistines at the Hedgerow, one of our oldest members, Bern, Bernie Zeldin, who's still alive, he's yeah. 98 years old. He still tells me. And so I've kind of, combined all of these different tales and legends into what happened. But uh, my, my understanding is that originally in 1958, it was the old uh, Borden estate. Yeah. Uh, and it was purchased by Evan Frankel and a number of the donors uh, in order to establish it at the Jewish Center of the Hamptons. One of the legends that I've heard is that because of the anti-Semitism at the time, the real estate broker who sold it to them was blackballed. I don't know if you heard that. Let and again, it, it's sometimes hard to to extract the. I heard that the uh, the, the Jewish Center on one day was sold twice. I didn't hear that one. The Borden Borden family sold it to a fellow um, high society member, who then sold it to the Jewish Center to Frankel. Uh, I'm not a member of that uh, of that uh, synagogue, but. Um, my parents, when we first moved here in the 50s, uh, after going to the uh, uh, Jewish Center in uh, Sag Harbor at that time, which was very orthodox at that time, the women's sat upstairs. Uh, and they were, my family was from New Jersey and they were um, looking for a, a, a conservative rather than an orthodox temple. And then this opportunity came up and then almost all the money came from these two people. It was the most extraordinary thing. And uh, uh, and, it, and then it became such a beautiful place to, to worship. Um, yeah, I mean, especially one of the game-changing moments is when the Jewish Center built our sanctuary in 1988. As you mentioned earlier, Norman Jaffe, who's the architect, who did the whole design of the building gratis. And on top of that, this is the only spiritual place that he ever designed or only only synagogue or any kind of faith uh, building he ever designed. And it really, I think, is his masterpiece. It is. It's the Sistine Chapel. I mean, it's it's something that's really extraordinary. Um, every single rabbi, every single Jew who walks in is, says, I've never seen anything quite like this. And they're, what I remind them is not, you have to do more than see it. You have to worship here with us because when you do it really you understand a lot more of what norman jaffe was trying to accomplish you can't just see a space and understand it you have to 
use a space in the way that it was supposed to be designed to really capture the full meaning of every little piece, every little design detail. Yes. When Jaffe was trying to infuse into the space. He was one of uh, last century's great architects and lived out here and worked out here. And we've kind of run out of time, I have to say. Uh, usually these, these podcasts go on for 20 minutes and I wanted to thank you um, for being on it. I'm talking to Josh Franklin, the rabbi at the Jewish Center of the Hamptons. Well, thank you, Dan, for having me. Uh, it was really a pleasure to join you. Bye now.